And if you have a Bible, uh, turn to James chapter 5. Bible, uh, phone, turning to James chapter 5. As you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of a setup. First, the overall setup is that we've been going through the book of James with the theme that we've titled the series, Gospel on the Ground. So we, you study this book, many people call it the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's full of so many practical life wisdom and, and wisdoms, and it's only valuable if you do it. That's one of the themes that James will say. It's like, you need wisdom, you're going through trial, you need joy. God will give it to you liberally, but you have to do it. So the theme has been, in what way can we take the wisdom from James, the wisdom that comes from knowing the good news gospel, and live it? And we, for the last couple of weeks, talked about one of those pieces of wisdom that has to be applied to your life in the area of humility. And we talked about that because James will build up to this and say, really, this all comes down to humility. If you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And in humility, submit to him and follow him and trust him. And with wisdom and patience and joy, God will care for you. But it takes you to trust him. And so for two weeks, we looked at that in in two categorical ways. One is, how are we humble with each other? Really hard to know how to practice humility. In a sanctuary, listening to a sermon, you all look incredibly humble right now. But James says, if you really want to do it, uh, be humble in relationship to the way you judge people. Don't judge them. Love them. And then last week, humility in practice Not just in the sanctuary, not just through a sermon, but by giving your life to God in humble planning. That was a challenging one. And all of the the new year, new you, things that you can do with your life, it's like, here's what I'm planning on doing. And the whole message last week was, if God wills. I submit to God. God is wiser than me. God has his hand on the future and on my life. And I trust him as far as I'm humble. And he actually has reigns over my life. Now, I mentioned that as a recap because we're going to continue in a theme of what comes out of that planning, but in an entirely new conversation. Because the motivation for James to share humility through planning was by giving a parable or a story of people who were going to go out and they were going to buy and they were going to sell and they were going to make a profit. And James says, you can do that according to God's will. But in that uh, motivation for life, you find yourself with one of the great offerings for what you can give your life to. As you think about what you're going to do to use this window of time that you have, one of the options before you, especially in the world and the consumeristic country that we live in, is to buy and to sell and to make a profit, which means we're shifting into a conversation about money and wealth and riches, which is why, once again, we find ourselves in this series saying, It could be called Gospel on the Ground. It could also be called uh, a sermon series that you probably don't want to bring your friend to. Because week after week, we find ourselves preaching these messages and then saying, just be patient and let's try to understand what he's saying because this is pretty heavy hitting. And that's going to happen again this morning. So if you're a visitor, if you're new to our church, we're going to be talking about money and we're going to do it in a way that will be in some ways pretty hard hitting. But... This is different than the first time we did this in the book of James. So I want to talk about it, but I preface all of that because we're going to read six verses right now where James is going to give an absolute rebuke to those who are using riches. They've done the buy-sell-profit plan, and it's working, and now they have a position in this world that gives them not only wealth but also power. And so what does James say to that in verse 1? Come now, you rich... 
Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Welcome to Calvary, Boise. (laughs) You have heaped up treasures in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back, meaning the wages by fraud, they cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of, not Sabbath, this is a different word, it's Sabaoth. And we'll talk about what that means, but he continues, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. In other words, you're getting away with all of these things in the condemning and the murdering of the just or the righteous or those that you're taking the funds of and oppressing for your own gain, and they're not even fighting you. They're letting you do it. They, they're not in a position where they can stop you. And James says, now, weep for what comes upon you. It's verse 1 of James chapter 5 where he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you that gives us the title of this morning's sermon, which is something that we'll think about in more ways than one. But here it is. Another thing is coming. In the position that you find yourselves in the world, in the position that you may find yourself in a trial in your life, uh, there's a reminder throughout the book of James, and specifically now for those in positions of wealth, there is another thing coming. This is not the end for you. You have not arrived at a place where you will sit on a position of power forever. There's another thing coming. And to that, James says, and you better be ready because it's drastically different than this life of comfort and ease that you've carved out for yourself. So, what are we talking about this morning? This is an interesting moment in the letter that James is writing to this church that is scattered abroad. And we have to remember the context. For the first four chapters, James has been writing to believers who have been persecuted, so much so that they've been uprooted out of their homes and brought to different regions of the world for their own safety. And in finding themselves in these regions, they're at an economic disadvantage, which is always true whenever you're boundaries shift and and God moves you. And because of that, James leads off with four chapters to say, in your trial, think about things with God's perspective so that you can have joy. No matter what's happening in your trial, in the way you've been uprooted, supplanted, and moved around, even with trial, trust God because he's doing something great. So in other words, the first four chapters are really a strategy for trial, for when life doesn't go as you expected, it gets hard. James says for believers, look for wisdom, allow wisdom to fuel joy, allow joy to be covered in patience, allow all of these things to be done with humility, all of the things we've been talking about. In James chapter 5, he's now going to shift away from just a strategy of trial, and he's going to point us towards some of the cause of the trial. Because now we get a a very clear insight as to why some of this is happening to the believers. And much like so many trials of life, it is economic in nature. James is going to give a picture where these people are working for those who are in positions of power and they're being oppressed. Their wages aren't given fairly. And those who are in power are going through great luxury. I say all of that contextually to tell you the sermon that I 
don't want to preach this morning. It's, by the way, there are lots of sermons in every passage of Scripture. So one of the arts of sermon writing is to try to find what is supposed to be said for now and in the context of what is written in the Bible. And I say that because one of the sermons that could be preached and often actually is when it comes to a condemnation against riches is a, a reminder for all of us that we live in a rich age. Just by way of us being in this sanctuary this morning with the clothes that you're wearing and the cars that you drove and the pantries and the fridges and the homes that you left that were full of things, we could receive this message from James personally and say, we all have some things that we could be a little more efficient in when it comes to our consumption. And that message might look something like this. Consume less and give more. Don't overindulge. Think about others. So, Stick around, James, long enough or you listen to enough sermons in this particular passage of Scripture, and you'll hear a message that says, we're all kind of rich. Whether you believe it or not, you, compared to the ancient times, you're doing really well. And one thing that we could think about right now is for us to say, how can we all use our privilege and position of wealth and just our economic status more efficiently for God's glory? That isn't the message I want to preach this morning, and I'll give you a couple reasons why. One, when it comes to understanding the response that Jesus has to money, he is neutral in both directions. He, is, he never allows money to be the issue that he's going to speak into as the main emphasis of his message or mission. So there are times when he clearly sees money as a roadblock for people to follow him. Classically, we have a character named the rich young ruler in the Gospels who wants to experience an eternal life. And Jesus says one of his problems is that he has so much identity in his wealth that he's not able to follow Christ wherever he would lead him. So he says the, the antidote for him is to sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow Christ. The man was unable to do that, which is part of the reason Jesus challenged him to use it as a teaching point that sometimes... Oftentimes, wealth or earthly riches are a roadblock to the kingdom for many people. This is a roadblock that most of you have overcome this morning in your economic blessings of 21st century United States. You have come into the sanctuary to seek the Lord. So by God's grace, we are people who live in a time that is very wealthy in the history of the world, but we're here and we're seeking. And it's, it's also helpful to remember that he's neutral in the way he swings both up and down, because there's also times where we could get overzealous with a message about money, and the pastor or uh, the, the leader of the church in my position could say, see guys, we need to be more efficient. You guys are wasting money. Look how nice your clothes are. You guys should, you know, try Target a little bit more than Nordstrom's, and then we could all do more for the church, right? And maybe that's true, maybe it's not. Uh, but there's a story in the Gospels that I want to point out so that Jesus can can really allow us all to remain as neutral and open-handed as we can when it comes to the resources he gives us so that we're not paralyzed in either direction. So look what happens as Jesus is approaching that Passover meal that we're going to celebrate very soon because Passover is the lead-up to the crucifixion and Easter. So we're, we're on our way towards studying this scripture in the timeline of our calendar, but look what happens as he's preparing to go into the Passover feast. It says this, And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, 
A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. Okay, this is to be underlined and considered because she wants to make an offering to the Lord in a violation of efficient spending, in a violation of the best way she could possibly ever use this for the economies of the world to be more equitable. It says that she poured it on his head as he sat on the table. So we can read that in a couple different lens. One, incredible offering that this woman makes. She has something that is a prized possession for her life, a spent expensive oil, and she wants nothing more than to anoint the head of the future king with the oil. But there's another filter that we point out because it could be a filter by which we read James chapter 5 if we're not careful. And this is the filter that the disciples are going to use. They're also in the house, and they see this woman come in and use this very expensive oil for Jesus. And what do they say? Next verse. But when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For the fragrant oil could have been sold for much more and given to the poor. So the disciples are playing the role of the budget committee. And they're looking at the resources that are laid at the feet of the Lord, and they're saying, wait a second. That could have been way more efficient if we would have sold it, taken the proceeds, and given it to the poor. Sounds righteous, but their motivation is actually off. It says they're, they're, they're angered that she made this offering. The Gospel of John will give a, a further emphasis that it was actually Judas who held the purse. So he had some personal interest in wanting to use the funds differently. And there's all sorts of ways that we can find ourselves listening to a talk about money and thinking, okay, we've got to use the money talk as a way to just bring down any kind of idea that we should spend money in any way that it is not absolutely efficient for the global economy. And it's like, are we so sure? I've felt this as the pastor because look around. We have an offering and we have all these things that we do within the context of our community that require money. I actually remember uh, this parking lot over here when we were, you know, you know, you turn dirt. You're always trying to figure out how to get more cars in here so we can park. And it was like, let's get a new area and let's put a parking lot in. Now, I don't know the final numbers, but if any of you have ever put a parking lot that size anywhere, you know that it costs a lot of money. And I'm like, oh, that's money, and <laughs> we have to spend it. And the Lord is going to give some reassurance that he did not come so that the kingdom of God could set some sort of economic bar by which no one would pass. And he would say, okay, now we want the kingdom of God to look the same everywhere you go. So if there's dirt parking lots anywhere in the world, there should be dirt parking lots everywhere. And if there's poor threads anywhere in the church, there should be poor threads everywhere in the church so that no one is ever disunified in the way that we're spending our money. But that's not the response that Jesus gives to his disciples. Look what he says. He says, when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. God has given you things, and you have a decision to make about who you are honoring with the use of your funds, and how elaborate and how extravagant you want to give to the Lord is up to you. And Jesus says, you can do a good thing even when it seems wasteful on this side of the economic divides. And it's true of our church right now. What we're doing today requires money, and we're saying, God, we just pray that it would glorify your name, that microphones and lights and walls and chairs would all be used so that the gospel 
could be preached, and people in 21st century Boise, Idaho, could come hear the word preached. And we trust that he will allow those opportunities to exist all throughout the world in their context unto his glory, and where anyone uses money for greedy gain, as would the disciples had, then he says, I'm against it. Now, that's one of the reasons I think we need to filter what James is saying, so that this message does not say, hey, everyone consume less, give a little bit more, I'll take care of the rest once we fund the money into the, the tithe basket, and we'll all be a little bit better for it. Uh, God can move on your heart however he wants to in that regard. I just don't think that's what James is saying here. And one of the other reasons I don't think James is trying to make us feel all condemned for the way that our economics will be different depending on what God has given us through gifts and resources is because James has already had a money talk with the believers that he's writing to. We actually had a sermon. When we got into James chapter 2, it was like, okay, sorry you brought your friends to church. We're going to have the money talk. And when we had that money talk, it was much more of the consume less and give more kind of sermon. Because what James says when he first introduces the topic to the letter is this, James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. In other words, the kingdom of God is supposed to be set apart and different, not that everyone has to have this same exact economic status, but that there would be no uh, partiality when it came to where you land. So there is no special seating for rich people. There is no special treatment of poor people in the grand welcoming that no matter where you stand with the dollars in your bank account, God loves you. He died for you. He gave his son so that you could have life. And that is without partiality, no matter what your economics are. That's how James was saying it when he first introduced the topic. And it's worth looking at because of one word that he uses then that he is not using this morning. And that word in James chapter 2 is my brethren. Throughout the, the letter, he makes it very clear when he's speaking specifically to the church or specifically to the believers. He says, brethren, or my fellow believers. And when he says that, what he's saying is, you've been scattered abroad, but I want to speak to you as people who believe in Jesus no matter where you are. Here's how we conduct ourselves with money to the brethren. And what I don't think he is saying is, hey, I know you've been persecuted. I know that you're supplanted and you're being taken advantage of, but I want all of you to consume less and give more. I think he's more sympathetic and more compassionate to their situation. And when he talks to, to them about money, he wants them to know that God's not going to make it an issue for salvation and they should not make it an issue for the congregation. But what does he say in James chapter five? He says, come now, you rich. He's not now talking to the believers, but he's going to take a moment for the first time to talk about some of the people who might be responsible for the trial in the first place. He's going to speak to an audience that he's really not writing to, which is kind of a violation of, you know, writing 101. It's like, know your audience and speak to them. But I think there's some real value in us understanding why James would offer an open rebuke to the rich and the ruling people of his day so that other people could hear it. I, uh, I actually find this practice to be useful in my own household. So I'm going to share a household story, which I often do because I live in my household. I, I spend time there and I interact in, in ways as a family member, but also as kind of an anthropologist. I'm like trying to understand human nature in my household. And this week, my daughter came up to me sobbing, crying, 
she was going through a trial in her life because she had just experienced one of those, just those cardinal pains of a household with kids in it. She stepped on her very first Lego. Oh, that is so, isn't that just painful when you're walking, you're barefoot, someone leaves a Lego out, you step right on it, and it's like, oh, I'm a 40-year-old man, and that brings me to my knees. So she comes to me, and she's weeping, and for whatever reason, we went back to the scene of the crime, and I actually found the culprit, and I held it up, and while she's weeping, she looks at me while I'm looking at it, and she was like waiting for me to say something, so I said, don't ever do that again. If you ever do that again, you're going to get kicked out of this house. And then I put it back where the Legos go, and she was like, thank you for defending me. <laughs> I said, Anytime. I'm your dad. I defend you. There's something about hearing the open rebuke, even within earshot, that is comforting. And most commentators think that James is speaking to an audience that may not hear it, so that others would have hope that God does hear, that God does see. That the trials that we're going through right now, many of them are economic. And when you have an economic trial or challenge because the belt is getting a little tighter, or you go through the last couple of years where everything just seems to be uncertain, including finances, it can often be tempting to say, man, I'm going through all this trouble. Look at this guy. He's just doing great. And that's so frustrating. And that's so annoying. And I think that's what James is going to say is, well, let's talk to this guy for just a second so that you would know that that's not your battle, but it is God's. And so James is going to have what I'll call a word with the ruling class. And as we read this rebuke, I want you to read it with a, with a couple perspectives. One, there, there's a good chance that some of you are part of a ruling class in your own way. Some of you probably have some authority over, over other people's livelihood based off how you treat the wealth that you oversee that would trickle down to them. So some of you need to listen for that reason. A lot of us need to listen as people who have been studying James for the strategy of trials and to realize that Part of your trial, the difficulty, I mean, you look at the statistics and so many trials have to do with your money. The number one reason people go through divorce is like, man, money is hard. And the trials of the last couple of years have been so economic in nature that we need to hear that God hears those cries. That when we're struggling and when we're burdened and when we feel like, man, this is just hard, we need to hear a message that says, God actually knows what's going on. And God actually has a plan to fight some of those battles that we're not called to, but we are a part of. And one of the ways that I want to encourage, this, encourage you to take this beyond Sunday, um, I found one particular psalm to be very helpful in the, in the study of this sermon, because there is one psalm that really throughout the, his writing of it, it's this like song of worship to God, but there's one psalm in Psalm chapter 73 where the psalmist is walking through the struggle of trial in light of other people's abundance that seem to be doing things not right. You follow Jesus and you're going through trial. The world isn't following him and they're doing great. Here's, an, here's a, a, a line from Psalm chapter 73, uh, again, encouraging you to read the whole psalm at some point this week. But he says this, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful, boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
There's so many challenges that exist in this sanctuary right now. And as, as we talk to the re open rebuke of the rich, we also say, for those of you following Jesus, you've learned a lesson if you've been following him longer than one day that he calls you to this narrow and difficult life. He calls you to a life that, where you believe there is something so great on the other side of the veil when you get to eternity that it is worth everything on this side. That there's nothing that you wouldn't give to God and trust that you'll get it tenfold when he calls you home. And, and in the meantime, in that, in that narrow and difficult, you may be tempted to say, I follow Jesus, isn't it hard? I go to church and it's difficult and challenging to love people and trust God. And I look out into the classes that we live in and the people at the top seem to be doing great. What am I doing wrong? What, what on earth? I'm trying so hard to be righteous, and I see the unrighteous prospering. That's the heart of this psalm, and that's one of the ways that James is ministering to the church that he's preaching into now. Here's an example that maybe some of you have felt. This is a big-picture example, but there's all sorts of ways that this will layer over to a more acute area of your life. Here's one headline. Wealth of world's billionaires rose $5 trillion amid pandemic, Forbes list finds. This is my favorite line from the article. For the gazillionth year in a row, 2021 was a good time to be rich. It's always a good time to be rich because somehow the world's richest people over the last two years have done great. They have done amazing. I mean, we have our own stories in Boise, Idaho, as a church and as families and as people. The last couple of years have been tight. And to, to think that as we go through our trials and struggles, and I minister to any of you who are, the, the belt is tightened, there are people at the top that are doing so well and are actually benefiting from some of this. That's frustrating. And that's some of the ways that James is going to speak into this because I can tell you it's not a 2021 problem. It's not a 2020. For as long as you read Genesis and on, there are people that use the exploitation of trouble and trial and difficult times for their own gain. And if you struggle, and one of the, the ways that we're being ministered to is this is not lost on God. God knows that church will go through persecution and there will be people who benefit from it that there will be times of economic crisis and there will be people at the top that are smiling. And we are here to be ministered to to say, what is the answer? Because if God's in control, then that's all we can really trust or all we can really do. So we come to now the rebuke. And James is going to publicly rebuke the ruling class in three separate ways that I hope, again, two perspectives. Some of us are like, may it not be true of us, and the other perspective is, as you go through some of these things, remember that God is good and in control. Here's another complaint from Psalm chapter 73. Their eyes bulge, the prosperity of the wicked, their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than the heart could wish. Some of those trials for the believers in the time that James was writing is that they had so little They've been moved. They're starting over from scratch. They now find themselves working under people where they're happy just to get enough to provide a meal. And they look and they say, these guys got everything. They've got abundance. Their eyes are bulging. Whatever that means. It's like that's how much stuff they've got. And that's one of the frustrations in your own life. As you go through some of the ways the road gets very narrow and difficult, and you look out and you see that there are people way less faithful to Jesus, and they have way more than you have. So what does James say to Psalm chapter 73 and to us this morning? He gives this rebuke with this in mind. Now let's say this. James chapter 5, verse 2. Your riches are corrupted. 
garments are, are, are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've heaped up your treasure in the last days. There is, in these two verses, something that James is going to point out that the Lord sees that is true of the oppressor, and it's true of those who have the abundance. They have everything, while those who are hurting have nothing. James says, just so you know, their excess is corrupted. They have way more than they need. And here's one of the ways that we will see that their plan will come to nothing is when someone has more than they need in a corruptible world, the treasure starts to corrupt. That's why James says, look at what they've got. They've got so much treasure and it's all corroded. Talks about their gold. He's also talking about in ancient times, their their riches as assets. So remember in Luke chapter 12, when we get the story of the rich fool, he had a bumper crop, so much goods that he had to tear down his barns to put in new ones. He had so much stuff that he didn't know what to do with it. And the idea being is when that happens, when the excess becomes so rich that you can't get out from under you, it starts to corrode and it becomes a witness against you in a couple ways. One, we're only meant to have so much. God did not want us to be building up these treasures and kingdoms on earth, knowing that when we get to the eternal glory of heaven, what we call gold will actually be pavement. That's the the perspective we're supposed to have is don't heap up treasure now because it's worth nothing where you're going. And one of the ways that James is pointing that out is the people who have done that, those who are living with great excess, are just reminding themselves that they can't keep it. That's all they're doing. Their assets, their grain, is rotting away. And as much as this is for the ruling elite, this is also for us as a reminder, those times where we are cleaning out the fridge and we're like, man, we got so much food. It's like, it's a reminder. It's a witness against you that you're not supposed to have more than you need. If you have more than you need, it actually becomes a ruin in your life. Time plus treasure equals trash. And it becomes a witness in a couple other ways. Uh, let, let's share an example of uh, all sorts of ways you could, but here's a modern example of excess that has been corrupted and now stands as a witness. Uh, this is Pablo Escobar's before and after. Now this is the before and after of great riches after corrosion. It's the opposite of what we normally think of. It says Pablo Escobar's $10 billion estate is now in ruins. Now neither one of these photos show the gravity of how much he was able to make. But imagine a man in our time. In fact, I think about him a lot because he's one of the reasons my wife fled Columbia and got to America. So in some ways, what what man intended for evil, God used for good, at least in my life. And you think about a man who acquired $30 billion of corruptible money. All of it had to be laundered. None of it went through what we call the legal way to make money. He was taking advantage of people. And in that $30 billion asset grab, he turned a lot of it into this prized possession estate, a helicopter landing and pools and, and, and homes that you can't even see the end of. It's like acres and acres and acres of real estate. And what happened? Eventually, corrosion sets place. No matter how big the kingdom gets, You can look at Pablo Escobar a couple, 30 years ago. You can look at the empires of the world where there is so much excess that it becomes unmanageable. It becomes ruins and the ruins speak and witness against your ability to maintain these things. And it's not just a witness against property. It's also a witness of our own lives because as you see his mansion, what you actually see is his soul. 
he could not save himself. He himself is now withered away. It's a witness to all of us that where excess rots away, we're reminded that we're not supposed to live on this side of eternity forever. Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures that will corrupt. Moths will eat them. Rust will come in, they'll be exposed by the elements, and thieves will take them. And all of that stands as a witness that you can't keep the stuff you get on this side of heaven. And it's also a reminder that unless you put on the incorruptible, you yourself will be a mansion that wears into ruins. Look what it says in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I say, brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. As sure as it is that we're not meant to live on earthly mansions that we build up, they will waste away, our bodies are considered tents. It's just a temporary dwelling. We're not supposed to live in our bodies forever. And as you see ancient ruins, you're reminded that your body itself will be bones. The kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit in corruption, which is where the gospel starts to be infused into this message that we must put on the incorruptible, that someone has to come and change the storyline away from treasures that fade away and bodies that erode, and Jesus Christ comes on the scene and says, now death is swallowed up by life, a witness of excess in our corruption. Now let's look at complaint number two in Psalm chapter 73. The psalmist continues. He's looking out. The prosperity of the wicked is everywhere. They got more stuff than they need. And also their pride serves as a necklace. They adorn themselves with pride. They've got so much. Violence covers them like a garment. They scoff and speak wildly concerning oppression. The idea of oppression for those who are sold out for the kingdoms of earth, they think of oppression and exploitation. They think of a fair wage or holding back pay. And they laugh. Of course I would. Get rich or die trying. Everyone's just in, uh, an extra in the movie about my greatness. And the ruling elite or those who are at the top or those who are part of the trial of your life because they have more wealth than you do, which equates to more power over your life. The psalmist says they laugh at how hard my life is and how great it is. They, their oppression is comedy to them. And so what does James say? Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Sabaoth, a word you don't typically find as a description of the Lord. Uh, The ESV gives you a a translation that you're probably more familiar with. It has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Hosts being the concept of an army of angels that God is the commander of. And when we think of the Lord that we serve, we are not thinking simply of Jesus meek and mild. We are thinking of the power of a word to create the universe. We are thinking of wrath that destroys sin and it pleases the Father to judge the wickedness of man. That is something that belongs to God as a just God. And what James is saying is, if you mock oppression, if you use people for your own advantage, no matter what happens to their life, their cry, their frustration, the psalmist who cries out and says, Lord, these people are taking advantage of us. Do you care? The answer is yes. God cares. God hears. God knows 
the needs that you have before you ask, and he is aware of all of the people who have pushed against his people. God hears. And I think of another version of this as I see it unfold in my own household, and I'm sure you, you all have versions of this in your own relationships, but there are times where my kids need nothing more from me than for me to be their judge. Sometimes I'll hear them playing in the other room, and it's like, you know, it's that escalation. We've all experienced it. It's like fighting and, you know, tug of war, and why do, why do murderous threats break out among you guys? And then one of them says something that means something. It's, it's part of us. They say, I'm telling on you. <laughs> and when they say that, they mean it, and it's a real thing that they know they need to have be true. And so they'll come to wherever I am. And then when I hear that I'm telling on you, I'm like, okay, I'm getting ready. There is, a, <laughs> there is a case that's been elevated to the Supreme Court of the house. And there are times as an earthly father where I am not like God. I'm like, I'm not taking that case. I'm so sorry, I don't care. <laughs> I'm busy and whatever you're going through is, is not part of what I have the energy for. And I am sometimes a picture of how frustrating it can be when you don't think you're being heard. But there are other times when I say, okay, tell me exactly what happened. And that triggers something for them to say, my father heard me. Regardless of the administration of justice, regardless of how I take their case and try to unravel the, the tension. I'm an earthly judge. I'm an earthly father. But what we need to hear in the, in the age that we live in, where we all want our voices to be heard, don't you see governors and senators and pastors and look what's happening all of those people are there for you to correspond with. By no means is this to say, just pray about anything that's oppressing you. But what it is to say is that God does hear when others don't. When no one else is seeing what you see or feeling what you feel, there is a God in heaven who cares about his kids. And James says to any of you who are part of the ruling class, who are laughing at oppression, you're in trouble. Because the God that we believe in is a God of justice. And we've got to take a minute here to speak into one of the cultural feelings that we're living in right now. Because we live in a generation that is crying out for justice. And there is all sorts of nervous tension points that have been poked and prodded to say, that's not fair, and this isn't fair, and this is oppression, and this is injustice. And here's what has to happen for justice to be administered. There is no justice without a just judge. There is no justice just by humans talking about fairness or equality or how we want things to be unfolded. The way you get justice is to find the God that gave justice your heart, in a, 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 a image-bearing heart in the first place. There is a just judge. And part of our job as the church, when we see the injustices, is to say, God, this is your battle. You're the just king. You're the just God. You will administer justice. It could be now, and it could be on the day of judgment, but there is coming a time where God will separate the sheep from the goats, and he will separate those who are faithful for those who are unfaithful, and those who have been wicked to God's people will be dealt with. I, I love that parable of the end times when judgment comes, and there's a parable that describes it all in comparison to a king, and he's basically separating the faithful from the unfaithful, and how does he do it? He says to some, you've done so well because I was in prison and I was naked and I was hungry and I was thirsty and you took care of me. Good job. Enter into my kingdom. You're part of 
my fold. And then there are others. He says, I was hungry, I was in prison, I was thirsty, and I was naked, and you did nothing for me. You used all your resources for yourself. Depart from me. You're not part of my kingdom. This is encouragement for any of us who are wondering how all of this is going to get equaled out in the end. And that is the answer, is that we present ourselves before God, and God says, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. How do we respond to the way we treat each other, deal with our own positions of wealth and consumerism in light of treating Christ in, in, in the way that we treat each other? That's a challenge. And it's an encouragement to know that the judge is still on the throne and he's working out the details of our chaotic world for his glory and in the end for the benefit of his people. Here's what it says in Romans 12. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do we trust God in the times that we live in to be the God of vengeance on our behalf? Complaint number three by the psalmist. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. You have a a new approach to the prosperity of the wicked. It's like they have everything that they want. They get to oppress and make a a show of it. And their life is so good. (laughs) They, They have ease. It's like they're always in these beautiful locations with nice cars and nice clothes and Welcome to our world. It's like we, we, we elevate those who've experienced a life of ease and we're like, maybe this is just a better life. Maybe I, as he says, maybe I cleansed my heart or I washed myself in vain. Maybe deciding to be fools for Christ and following the narrow way, how difficult it is and rejecting all of the earthly riches that I could have consumed. Did I waste my time? Because my life is hard and their life is easy. And so what does James say? To those who have experienced a life of ease in wicked riches, he says, you have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. You fatten your hearts as in a day of slaughter. I I think the next time I teach through James, I'm just going to do a whole series on all of the beautiful imagery that James uses in his pictures of things. It's like you guys are horses and your ships and you're on fire and you're fat calves. (laughs) But that's the picture. We, we looked at Luke chapter 15, where had a moment of a fatted calf. The prodigal son returns. It is time for a feast. So the father, out of a heart of love and grace, kills the fatted calf, and they all eat and celebrate. And that's a small little reminder of the life of a fatted calf. A fatted calf's job is to get fat, <laughs> to eat lots of grass, enjoy a nice, safe life, and allow their their body to grow and expand for the consumption of their life. And James is like, think of it in those terms. You get 70 or 80 years. It's a tiny window in light of eternity. And those at the very top, in those 70 or 80 years, in their ease, it's more like they're eating whole grain food, getting ready for their day of judgment. It's going to flash like a blink of an eye. And all of their ease and their comfort and the things they've done to have luxurious lifestyles 
will fade away and it will all be gone as fast as a cow is slaughtered. So welcome to church, everybody. <laughs> Here's a parable to put it in, in, a, in, a, in, in terms just to remember. Parable of power. The temples of empires come tumbling down. The names of the mighty forgotten. Here is a parable. Power never lasts. And as you find yourself in a Psalm 73 frustration, as you look out at the well-being of the ungodly and the, the pressure and persecution of those who love Jesus, and you think their life is easy, their life is a small vapor. And then they'll meet the Lord face to face. And it's, fat, it's going by so fast. And what Jesus is saying is, it is possible to gain the whole world and still lose your soul. It is possible to be at the very top of an earthly kingdom and to be at the very bottom in eternity. Who are we? Because the Apostle Paul breaks down the suffering on this side of eternity with the weight of glory in a way that says it's not even comparable. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he puts the scale on the table. And he says on one side of the scale, you have the suffering of the current age. And on the other side of the scale, you have the glory of the Lord calling you into eternity so that you can have everything that he's prepared for you. And Paul says it doesn't even compare. And it's with that in mind that we think through the battle that the Lord fights on our behalf, the ruling classes of the ages that we live in, the, the ruling class of the, the world, the country, the governments, the, the schools, the decisions that get made that affect you. Your job is to continually seek God with joy, humble yourself for his wisdom, and say, this stuff's going to get worked out at the Lord's time, which is why this sermon has to go all the way into verse 7. This is not supposed to be a standalone sermon. This is not a sermon that is really supposed to be preached to the audience that is listening. It's supposed to be heard by them so that they can pivot towards the final point of all of this, which is where I hope we can be as we navigate whatever the world has for us in, in the broken systems of economies, in the broken systems of government, in all of the ways that will cause trial. Here's what James says. Therefore, verse 7, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. This is where we can say, well, what does this mean for me? What it means for you is that God is on the throne. He has a timetable to work all of these things out. He's appointed rulers to do their thing, to sometimes tighten our belts to the glory of God, to sometimes pressure us and move us and persecute us. And in all of those things, he will fight the battle, and our job is to wait because the king is coming. The Lord of lords is on the way. The one that all rulers will bow to in the Philippians 2 moment when the trumpets sound and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. That's what we wait for. And when that day comes, he puts all things to right. When that day comes, there is a kingdom that administers perfect justice and perfect peace and perfect equality for all of us to glory together. But that's not today. We wait for that day. And now James will give us a picture of what that looks like. Remember, he's speaking to an audience of people that were called reapers. They were out in the field. They were working hard for the man, and the man was taking their money. So James says, wait a second. Think of it in terms of your field. You guys were out there. You planted. And what happens after you planted? He says, after you plant, you wait. The, see the farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he receives the early and latter rain. 
You plant and then you bury. It's like a picture in agriculture that just gives this whole sermon. It's like the seed of God's word in your heart buried by the trials of the world. The, the power of the spirit in you up against all of the difficulty of life, waiting, waiting. And then he says, you gotta wait for what? Rain. The storm comes. Before the, the, before the harvest, a lot of rain, a lot of storm has to come. And so it is. He says, just as the farmer is waiting for the harvest, he waits through the covering of the seed, he waits through the storms, he waits through the rain, and then in God's perfect timing, the harvest comes. This is God's people. And that is what you are called to do. You've been buried. Your trial is burying you. you the rain is coming. The storms are on their way. And the farmer waits. And he trusts that all of that, with a little bit of sunshine, will turn into a harvest. This is the world we live in. The Lord is coming back. He's planted the seed of the gospel into your heart. He's given the hope of his return to all who would receive. Wait patiently and do not lose heart. So I leave you with the final moment from the book of Psalms. He has this conclusion. The psalm is worth reading because it's an entire shift in his heart from doubting and questioning God in light of the prosperity of the wicked to realizing that he can trust God in all of these things. He said, I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. I was questioning you. I thought other people had it better that didn't even know you. I was wondering why I decided to follow you. I took all of my challenges and thought, man, it would be better if I was just a, a prosperous non-believer. And the psalmist says, I am so stupid. <laughs> I'm so sorry I thought that. Because now, as I think about those who don't know you and the way that their lives will be destroyed apart from you, you'll guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Consider it all joy when you fall into various trials. And let patience have its perfect work that you would be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. God is on the throne. He's not confused by the state of our world. He's not surprised by the trials that come because of the class warfare you find yourself in. He will be your defender. Your job is to trust him and to wait and to believe that he will lead you after all this is over into a glory that the wealth of this world has never seen. That's for us as believers. If you had to sum it up, maybe I'd say this message could be called, don't worry, be patient. For all of us who believe and we think of the news headlines and we think of the trials, don't worry, be patient, God is good. But if I had to give a second name to it, it's for anyone who's not a believer. Anyone who is still part of a buy, sell, profit mentality that that's what you're gonna do with your life. I would say worry and be humbled. I would say weep and howl because there's something else coming that will totally change the dynamic of your personal kingdom and it will bring you to your knees. And I hope that maybe that day is today that you would cry out for the Savior, for the Lord of hosts, for the Lord of vengeance, for the Lord of peace, for the Lord of, of, of uh, salvation for all of your lives. If you believe, don't worry and be patient. If you've come here searching, repent and be humbled.